All right, I think uh, we'll go ahead and get started. So if you remember last time, Pastor Marlene left off with uh, the sermon, the sermon given by Peter to all the people that were gathered in Jerusalem. Um, and everyone came up to him and they said, Peter, what should we do? They heard his sermon. A lot of people heard the gospel. A lot of people were converted and they heard we're on uh, session five. Yeah, we are starting on uh, point four, large point four, on the back, back side of session five. So Peter preached this excellent sermon inspired by the Holy Spirit to all these people. And Peter's word reached a lot of people. It cut deep into their hearts, it says. So they came up to him and they said, what should we do? What did Peter tell them to do? It was simple. Two things. Do this and do this. What were they? That's one of them. Yep. That's the second one. What's the first one that you do before you are baptized? It is blank and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent. Repent. That's, uh, that's what we're going to be starting with today. I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this, from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So we'll start off with repentance. What is repentance? You can, you can cheat off the sheet right in front of you there. Someone tell me, what is repentance? It has two parts. Acknowledge your sin and believe that Christ forgives you. Exactly. First we acknowledge our sin, and then we believe that Christ forgives us. What does that sound like? It sounds a lot like these two teachings of the Bible that Lutherans love to harp on. What does that sound like? Faith, not quite what I'm looking for, but it is part of it. The two teachings of the Bible, you can say that all of Scripture can be divided into blank and blank. Law and gospel. So the law. First, we acknowledge our sin. How does the law play a part in acknowledging our sin? Right. There, we, we would say that there are three uses of the law. Uh, the first is that it is a curb. How is the law used as a curb? Now, this was in your confirmation class, so for one or two of you, this may have been more than a year ago. Are you saying, <laughs> are you saying curb? Curb. C-U-R-B as oh, in bold. Curb. Curb. Okay. Yeah, so when you're on a road and there is a curb, not a curve, but a curb, what does the curb stop you from doing while you're driving? Claire. 
Exactly. It stops you from going off the road. It stops you. It is there as a barrier. It doesn't let you go off of the road. I'm a truck picker, so it doesn't stop me. <laughs> it stops everyone but Pastor Moline from sinning. He is free. <laughs> um, so it stops you from sinning. It tells you, do not do this. Now, the second use of the law. Does anybody know? Again, this, this might be uh, digging up some deeply repressed memories. <laughs> There's a curb. You said what? Mirror. A mirror. The second use of the law is the mirror. Yes. So how is the law used as a mirror? It first stops you from sinning, tells you, you know, do not do this. And then what? It shows you your sin. It reflects you and it says, look, this is what you have done wrong. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. And so that is used as a mirror, for example. You have had other gods. It tells you, don't have other gods, but look. Look at yourself. You have had other gods. It might be yourself. It might be money. It might be school or status, reputation, any of these other things. So that's the usage of the law. What's the third usage? Now, the third use is just slightly different. This is what the law does for you once you have been made into a Christian. Once you are baptized into Christ, you put on the new man. What's the third use of the law? How to live. How to live as the law as a guide. So first it tells you, don't sin, don't do these things, and then it shows you, look, you have done all of these things wrong. Now you're a Christian, you're baptized, then it tells you, okay, now do these things. Like all the meanings of the commandments from Martin Luther, you know, it says we shouldn't do this, but do this. Like with authorities, we should honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. So those are the three uses of the law. A curb, a mirror, a guide. That's how we repent. That's the beginning of repenting. We need to know that we sin. You've heard the saying before. Um, the first step is admitting you have a problem. That's what the law does for us. That's how we begin repentance is, okay, the law is showing us that we sin. We're admitting that. We need help. We, see, we feel sorry for our sins. That's another aspect of, of acknowledging our own sin. So then what's the second step to repentance? It's that we believe Christ forgives us. Now let me ask you this. Is repentance, we're looking at the entirety of repentance, acknowledging our sin and believing that Christ forgives us, is repentance something that you do all by yourself? No. How do you repent? Like, let me, let me rephrase this. Who helps you repent? Holy Spirit. We're going to move on with that in mind. So, we, second, we believe that Christ forgives us. We we're not acknowledging that this is done through the Holy Spirit. So when someone tells you, you know, for example, you've heard the fire and brimstone style of preaching where 
an evangelical might get up and start pounding the pulpit and go, repent, repent, the end is nigh. They mean something a little bit different than when we mean that. Because when they talk about it, they're talking about doing it as something that you do, as a work that comes from you. They believe things such as... uh, you need to complete the work that Christ did on the cross. Repentance is one of those things that they would say you need to do, that you are responsible for in your own heart to complete the work of God. Uh, So moving on to point B, what is baptism? It says, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So, What is baptism? This is a very easy, simple answer I'm looking for here. Two elements to baptism, and what are they? Exactly. I love that. Everyone all together. Now the second question. Uh, In whose name is the baptism done? Okay, getting a few different answers. So, which one is it? Is it in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, or is it in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, those are two conflicting things, right? Because it says here, baptized in the name of Jesus. But in Matthew 28, we hear, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's both. It's not an either-or situation. We're talking about in the name of God. We know who God is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the name. Where one is present, the other two are also present. So it's, it's a reference. It's not literally just saying, baptize you in the name of Jesus. Jesus tells us explicitly how we are to baptize everyone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, we've acknowledged. Baptism, necessary. In whose name? What does baptism do for us? Peter says it right here. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Uh, Water, the word, in the name of Jesus Christ, and it brings forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. I have an example, but I think that I want to save that until a little bit later. Because I want to talk about it for a little bit. Um, We'll keep going to the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when you're baptized, you get forgiveness of sins. It also talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's the gift of the Holy Spirit? Faith. Okay, faith. What does faith bring? There's a lot of different things, so it could be any number of different things that faith brings. Repentance is a good one, yeah. Well, it brings understanding of God's word, you could say. Uh, So looking at the quote there that's from the small catechism, the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith faith the gift of the holy spirit let's uh let's turn to romans chapter 7 yes 
I don't think that I would say that um, because it would be really easy to confuse those things. For example, when you say that my conscience is telling me to do this thing, we wouldn't say the Holy Spirit is telling me to do this thing. That kind of enters into the, uh, the realm of, you know, oh, God is talking to me and he's the little voice in the back of my mind. That's not really what we would want to say. Um, we could definitely say that the Holy Spirit influences your conscience because through the word, it teaches us what is right, what is wrong. And that influences our conscience. Um, tells us that, you know, well, I really shouldn't hurt this person or you're walking away from a cash register and realize, oh, they gave me an extra five. The right thing to do would be to go back and give it to them. Well, that's influenced by the Holy Spirit because... It teaches us. It enlightens us. It tells us about what the Word of God says, helps us to understand all those things, and then we act upon everything that we've learned through the Holy Spirit. See, and I'm looking at it as more of a curve. It, it's the curve, and it, it's almost like this curve and near, and those two things together telling you, guiding you. Not mm -hmm. so much telling as guiding, because it's, it's like the path of light and Darkness. Which one should I take? It guides you. So I guess I'm it's not really conscious per se, but it's a guide for your conscience. Yeah, that, I mean, we would definitely say the Holy Spirit influences influences us in those ways, um, just by keeping us in the faith, by being a Christian, by hearing more about the Word and what it teaches us to do. Um, would you say all that's accurate? Your conscience yeah. is benign and uh, uninformed. Until uh, yeah. It, until it, to me, it it kind of leads me to think that my my works conscience is part of it. You know, is coming from me and not from. I would say that your conscience is where God wrote the natural law upon your heart. And so in one sense, it is a work of the Holy Spirit to do that. The challenge is, is that it's in our heart, which means sometimes our conscience is broken. Right? So, Marilyn, the very first time that you robbed a bank, you felt a little nervous and scared. But after you'd done 25 banks, it became second nature to you, and it didn't feel as bad, because your conscience, by all your crime... I'm just joking, is becomes broken and scarred. And so that's the reason we know it cannot be the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is God and is always holy. But through the Word, the Holy Spirit maybe washes clean your conscience so that it knows what's right and wrong again, so that the law in your heart is clear. So um, maybe a way to think of your conscience is like a window. When your conscience is clean and clear, you can see outside and everything is crystal clear. You can tell the boundaries and, and, and see what you're looking at. When your window gets dirty because you have four kids with their face against it all the time looking at the ducks in the backyard, not speaking personal experience here, the window gets dirty and you can't see out of it as well. And so God, in the Holy Spirit with His Word, washes it clean so that you know what's right and wrong again, so you can see out it again. 
And that's what I'd say the conscience is. So the Holy Spirit works in your conscience, but it is not your conscience. Is that, what do you think about that, Vicar? Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's a better way to state what I was, what I was trying to, to state <laughs> earlier. It, the Holy Spirit is not your conscience, but it does influence it heavily. And the Holy Spirit in God's word says, thou shalt not steal. And when that word comes to you, that's part of cleansing your conscience, because that's like Vicar fantastically did. The three uses of the law, now you've looked at yourself, having heard the word, and you said, well, what I've done does not match what God's word says. And then that conscience helps with the third use of the law tremendously. Good. That's a good example. I'll use Maryland robbing banks in the future. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so we are we're going to Romans seven. This this actually ties in really well with that discussion. So this is uh, this is where Paul talks about you know the very very famous phrase of you know the good that I want I do not do and so on. So I'm going to look at verse seven here for a little bit. Uh, what what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So this is again talking about the law shows us what sin is. It tells us what not to do. Um, This is the Holy Spirit working in us to work in us repentance to get us to acknowledge our sin, to teach us about what is right, what is wrong, what God wants us to do, what God does not want us to do. Does that make sense? I want to look at uh, the other verses I was talking about. I think I'm at verse 14 and following. Uh, For we know, this is Romans chapter 7 still, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So this kind of answers our question here. Apart from God, it is written on our heart. The law is written on our heart. What does the Holy Spirit do? How does it influence that? In other words, we could say that the Holy Spirit teaches our mind that, makes the connection between heart and mind, teaches us more about what the law wants, makes us realize that, oh, there is good, there is evil, 
makes us want to do the good, but we're not always able to do the good because we still have flesh. So the Spirit will always inform us, will always be trying to tell us through the Word and through the sacraments, etc., what we should be doing, what we should not be doing. Um, But as long as we have flesh, sin does still dwell within us. I think I talked about this in, I think it was my devotion from today. The unholy trinity. Sometimes pastor will say me, myself, and I, but what I always learned it as is the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. The devil always puts forth an opportunity for you to sin. Our sinful nature reaches for that opportunity. And all the while, the world is egging us on and telling us, yeah, go, do it, do it, do it. Come on, be like the rest of us. Join us. Be of the world, so to speak. But uh, God's law written on our hearts and delivered to us through the Holy Spirit tells us not to do those things. It gives us, like Pastor Mollian said, a clear conscience. So that way we can see what's right, what's wrong, and we have the opportunities to pick what's right. I think, does anyone else have, does anyone have any questions or anything before we move on? Anything that I need to clarify there? Okay, good. Either it makes perfect sense or clear as mud. So we'll go with the first one. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus always, always, always. One thing that I struggled with a little bit as a kid was, uh, you know, we learn in the creeds and especially like in the Athanasian creeds that, or the Athanasian creed that God the Father God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all co-equal. So why is it that Jesus always seems like the most important? For example, we always pray in the name of Jesus. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? That's true. We would also say that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us as well. Have you heard the term uh, paraclete before? Can anybody tell me what paraclete means? Helper. Helper. So the Holy Spirit is also a helper. We're not... um, We're not confining any of the persons of the Trinity to one specific job, but we do know from the scriptures that, for example, the Holy Spirit does act like a paraclete, a helper. So he helps us. When we want to pray, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit kind of takes our prayer. This is an illustration. This is not literal. Takes our prayer... That's signed, you know, in the name of Jesus, because it's by the work of Jesus that we are able to pray, and we can call God our Father. 
I don't want to get too far into this. I feel like I'm going down a rabbit hole here. But the Holy Spirit will take our prayer and deliver it and say, here is the prayer from one of your children. Delivers it up into heaven. So it's a paraclete. It helps us. It'll also help us form prayers. It'll help us to pray when we don't know what we want to pray for. It guides us to praying in the way that God wants us to pray. Following, tracking. So the Holy Spirit helps us in many ways. There are many gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, And we can't really enumerate them, but we do know for sure that it does do some of these things specifically. Make sense? Good? Okay. Uh, We'll move on to point D. So the promises, it says that the promise is for you and for your children and all those who are far off. Uh, What promises are for you and your children and for all who are far off? Salvation, Salvation, yes. Um, He's talking also about one specific thing here that is definitely for you and your children and all who are far off. Forgiveness of sins? Through what would we say? Baptism. Baptism. So baptism, faith, salvation, the promise, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And I want to break that down just a little bit because each of those things is said very specifically and for a very important reason. Um, First off, for you. Why is that important? Why is the for you important here? Exactly. Yes. Everyone is a little bit different. Martin Luther says in his explanation to the uh, sacrament of the altar, he says that it's important that you realize this is for you. In reference to the sacrament, he says, uh, if you believe that this is for you, along with several other things, of course, like the real presence and everything, but that's that's really important part, is the for you, for the forgiveness of sins, for the strengthening of your faith, for your edification. It's important to realize that all these gifts of Christ, all the promises of God, are for you, not for any kind of uh, other people that you don't know of or a group that you are not a part of. It is for you applying to every single individual person. Now the second part is and for your children. So this is not simply saying uh, this is for you like for example talking to Ashley this is for you and for your children uh, who are here. It's not limiting this at all. It's saying for your children, for your offspring, for everyone going down in your lineage. There's not anything that could happen that would make them ineligible. This is inclusive language, we could say. This is inclusive of you who are here witnessing this right now, 
also for all of your future children. And doesn't say this specifically, but we could extend this also to and their children and their children and their children and so on and so forth without ending. So this is one part that Lutherans will also commonly reference when people will say, you should not baptize kids because uh, they're not of the age of uh, accountability. Have you heard that before? Yes. Talked about the age of accountability with kids. And we'll say, Peter specifically says that this promise is for you and for your children. Not limiting it to presence, not limiting it to age, not limiting it to, you know, if they are male or female or anything like that. It's, and your kids, a little baby, one month old. Is that still your kid? Yes. There's, there's no dividing line there. There's no age that is specified here. It's, it's just for your entire lineage. And then also, the third part of this is all who are far off. Why did he include that? Because it was very specific. He was preaching to a crowd of people. Why did he include all who are far off? And I want to say... Let's remember the context here. There's a festival going on in Jerusalem. He's preaching to literally thousands of Jews. What was the problem that we saw all throughout the Old Testament with the Israelites? Like Leonard, for example, we're, we're learning in the book of Habakkuk. What was the problem that the Israelites, the Judeans, all had? They're always being conquered. They're always being conquered. And they always disobeyed. They're always disobeying. And... I'm trying to lead up into this without, without making it too obvious. Did they think they were in an elite group? Exactly. Yes. They thought that they were the elite. So back in the day, they are all about groups, about lineage. Jews were all about their heritage because God chose them. They were the chosen people, not all of those other people. We are God's chosen people. So... All of these Jews that Peter is speaking to right now, they all have that up here. They know the Old Testament. They know that God told them, you are my chosen people. They know the history of being brought to Canaan and then being brought into Egypt as God's chosen people. And then being brought out of Egypt and being brought through the Red Sea and all throughout the wilderness. All because they were God's chosen people. They spent thousands of years with that in their heads going, yes, God's chosen people, that's us. You know, so these promises, they're for us. And then Peter lays this down on them. And for all who are far off. It's not just about you anymore. This promise is for everyone. It's for you. It's for your children. Yes, they're Jews. Yes, it's for you. But it's also for all who are far off. This promise. This promise including baptism. Today, it's kind of the norm for us to cross boundaries. Like, uh, we hear all the time about all kinds of uh, political divisions and cultural divisions. 
racial divisions, all these types of things, and they're always like, we need to, you know, integrate more of this, and we need to reach across the aisle, we need to be friends with everyone and have everyone get along. I'm not saying any of that is bad, not commenting on that at all, but what I am saying is that today we are always used to that. We're always trying to include more people and find ways to be inclusive. That's not the way that it was back then. It was a strange thing to be inclusive because everyone was very kind of tribal-minded. Like, for example, uh, the Samaritans versus the Jews from Jerusalem. They were very divided. They were hostile against each other. So that was the norm, was that, you know, this is for this specific group of people. But now, Peter is breaking, shattering that norm, saying, no, this is for everyone. This is not just about your, the God's chosen people anymore. This promise applies to everyone. You're not that special anymore. Any questions or anything like that? Any thoughts, comments? Um, yes, that's kind of directly what we're leading into. He is offering the promise to all these people um, through baptism. Because it says there are 3,000 souls uh, added that day, those who received the word and were baptized. So he's talking to a bunch of unbaptized people. Um, so he's saying baptism is for you. Does that answer that question? Um, so baptism, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, these are all central themes to a good Lutheran sermon, to Peter's sermon here. Um, how do we know, I want to see if this is the correct way to phrase this question, how do we know that children can sin or have a sinful nature? Okay, yeah. We can think of the terrible twos and all that kind of stuff, of course. Uh, what about a little tiny baby who can't do anything for themselves? Inherited sin. How do we know that? In other words, let me ask, let me ask a different question that will maybe answer this question. If Adam and Eve never sinned, what would they be like today? They would still be alive, right? Because sin entered the world and caused death. So to answer my previous question, we know that everyone, every human, sins because every human can die. We know that death, uh, the, the wages of sin is death. What is God's answer, or I almost want to say cure, to sin? It's Jesus, right. The work of Jesus. Jesus dying on the cross to save us from our sin. How is that work of Jesus on the cross applied to us? That promise that God will save us, which is what Peter is talking about here. How is that promise applied to us? 
Yes. How is that? Uh, how do we receive that forgiveness? Let me put it that way. We just, <laughs> we just are. We're just receiving. Well, through faith. Through faith. Yeah, through faith. And how do we gain faith? Through the word and the water. Through the word and the water. So, baptism. Am I making these connections? Am I connecting all of these dots? Is this hopefully starting to make sense? <laughs> so, we know that babies, for example, babies who can't do anything for themselves can die. They can feel the effects of sin. And if they can sin, what's the cure for sin? Baptism. So, babies, baptism, that's the connection that we make in the Lutheran church as opposed to other churches that don't believe that baptism really forgives sins. Because that's the key. We believe baptism forgives sins. It says it right here. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the key, because not everyone believes that baptism forgives. The purpose of a Mormon baptism. You know, I don't actually know why they baptize. <clears throat> they, they do baptize, um, and it's a weird belief that goes with it. That's why they baptize also people who have died in the past. So anybody genealogy people? <laughs> so when you do genealogy, the Mormons are the people who know everything. And the reason they know everything is because they want to baptize all of their ancestors who went before them with the belief that that will get them from um, the from from hell into the what do they call it the first level of heaven. They have different levels of heaven, different rewards, and baptism will move you up one level. It won't get you to the good heaven where you'll enjoy yourself. But it'll get you to the waiting line then. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not hell, but it's not good. It's in between. And so they believe that they baptize an individual. So, um, let's say Marilyn, well, you're not a boy. Let's say Leonard is a, a Mormon, and uh, he can be baptized then on behalf of his great great grandpa. So that his great-great-grandpa will go from a not-so-good place to a better place. Even though his great-great-grandpa can't go to the highest heaven and he can't become his own god, he won't be suffering in hell, is their belief. And, and so you get baptized on behalf of somebody who's dead from long before. It's not scriptural, it's not biblical, it's not true. Uh, but that's what they're doing. Now I, I don't remember what your question is, so I don't know if I've answered it. It's just about baptism and Mormons, because I know they baptize, like you say, dead people, and they have those, those. I don't know if they have ancestry, I don't know which ones they have, but I know they have genealogical sites, and they are considered the best, and they, I think they baptize everybody in town. Right, that's, and that's, the, that's what they're trying to do, is to get them into a higher level of health. So for example, 
just like all people who are European, uh, if I go back to the right branch of the family tree, I can get to Charlemagne, the king of the Holy Roman Empire around 800 AD. Um, and if you go back in the family trees on Ancestry.com or uh, the different places that do that, they'll have listed there that he was baptized in 1978. It doesn't make any sense because he died in 812 or something like that. <laughs> so how was he baptized 1,100 years after he died? Well, somebody went to the Mormon temple and was baptized on his behalf because it wasn't fair for him because he lived before they knew all the stuff about the angel and the, the Mormons and the Israelites who left and came to America and uh, had the big war between the dark-skinned and the light-skinned and the light-skinned people won and the evil dark-skinned people uh, you, you know, all that stuff. Since he didn't know, we'll be baptized on his behalf, and he'll get a little bit better place in an afterlife. It's nonsense. Um, what is the thing that saves you? Faith. Faith. Faith in Jesus, crucified and risen. Uh, that baby faith, because maybe they don't have faith, they're baptized into it. Well, what's the baptism give them? Faith. Faith yes. in, in Jesus Christ. Yeah. With faith. Yeah. What if you're not baptized? Yeah. How does, so this is where knowing the means of grace is really important. How does God work faith? Yes, through baptism, but also through the Word, and also through the sacrament. So, can you be saved without baptism? Yes, if, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, which can come through the Word, which can come through the other means of grace. But if you're thinking babies and small children who don't have the Word, the, you know, they don't have any of that, well, how can they be saved? That's not necessarily the, the case. The, when the, my wife is pregnant. Um, if I got my head up right next to her belly, and I said something, what did the kid do? Move. Move, why? They can hear you. Because they can hear. So when, you, when you're a pregnant mom and you come to church, what's the baby receiving? The word. What does baby eat while baby's in mom? Communion. Whatever mom eats goes into baby. So a mom who comes and kneels down for the Lord's Supper, who's pregnant, what does baby get? Communion. Communion. Is God working faith even then? Can he be? Yes. Now, when a baby gets out, we say, oh, they heard the word when they're in the womb, so they're good. What do we want to do when baby's born? Baptize. Baptize. So the means of grace, God works faith and can work it how and when he sees fit. Can't God be the judge if something, like isn't there a place in Matthew where it says the rest leave them to God? In other words, if, I thought I, I thought I read that somewhere. In other words, you should be baptized. You should be baptized. But say for instance. But 
you can be saved. You're saved by faith that trusts in Jesus, which comes through baptism, comes through the Word, comes through the Lord's Supper. In those means, God works faith and brings us to eternal life and can how he sees fit. But once you have faith, you want to be baptized. Yeah. Right. So all the people who don't go to church. That's a hard thing, isn't it? You know, <laughs> when you stop and think about it, because well, I, I remember one time they talked about how many people were unchurched and not believing. And I don't remember what the figures were. It was so long ago when we had one of our roundups trying to give us, yeah. In, in Lincoln, I think that less than 50% of people go to church on Sunday morning, according to the statistics I read a year or two ago. There's more to church. church. They may believe, and they may have had, had some. That's true. Now, what's the challenge? Right. Um, the question is. Right. There, if you're not coming to church and receiving God's word and the sacraments, it's in a sense starving your faith. It, it can still be there, but it's not as strong or as healthy. And the Christian, in faith, desires to be in church as much as possible. Just while you're all here, right? <laughs> you could you could be taking your afternoon nap, or um, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Huh? <laughs> Faith, just like when I eat um, a chocolate bar, I want more chocolate bars. Faith, when it receives God's gifts, wants more of God's gifts. Okay, how do we explain? The thief on the cross. Yeah, that's my Where did he get? Where did he get? Jesus. Yeah, I know. Do you want me to tackle it, or you want to? I um, feel like I'm taking over your Bible study. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, the textbook answer would be when we talk about baptism, and you know, Baptists, for example, will say, uh, "Well, you know, what about the thief on the cross?" That's a very common question because the thief on the cross, we don't know if he was baptized. He probably wasn't. But Jesus does say, "You today you will be with me in paradise. So then, how do we answer that? Is baptism necessary? The thief on the cross went to heaven. We would say that baptism is necessary, but it is not absolutely necessary. So, for example, if Jesus directly looks over at you from the cross and says... Today you will be with me in paradise. We know for a fact that he will be with them in paradise. God can elect to save anyone that he wants to. Baptism is our assurance that he will. Because Christ commanded it. He told us it is for the forgiveness of your sins. We know that's a promise. We know that that's true. So that's why we always try to baptize babies if... Where there's some kind of problem or anything like that at the hospital, you know, you, you'll hear of a pastor going doing an emergency baptism because we want to take the very first opportunity to gain that assurance of salvation. And you were bringing up, you know, what if a, what if a baby uh, dies, not baptized? 
Well, we can't say that he has the assurance of baptism, but like Pastor Moline said, the means of grace can still work in a baby in the womb. We know that they can hear. Uh, if you can hear the word of God, you can have faith. God gives you faith through the word of God. So that's the assurance that we would then rely on in that case. I have baptized babies that were dying, and that's said to be okay. Just by baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We got a hymnal up there, because I think of the hymnal, maybe underneath. Um, in the hymnal, there is a right for emergency baptism if a pastor can't go there. Uh, they, I was gonna say, um, oh, in the back? It's in the very, very back or the very, very front. I don't remember. Um, the thief on the cross. What is it that saves? Faith. Faith in Jesus crucified, risen for you. And what does he see as he's hanging there on the cross? Says you truly are. Jesus crucified, risen. Not the risen part, but he's the crucified for you part. And what's Jesus doing as he's hanging there? When they nail him up, what does he say? Father, right. He, he, this sounds weird. He's preaching a sermon. <laughs> and the, the thief is hearing. And when he's hanging on the cross, what's he doing? He is dying. He's also praying the Psalms. We have one of them recorded for us, right? Um, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I'm surrounded by this. Uh, my tongue's stuck to the roof of my mouth. He's speaking God's word out loud. And so the thief on the cross, what's he hear? He hears the sermons. He hears sermons from Jesus. So how is he saved? By the word. It means grace. So sorry. Nope. So sorry, Victor. It's all good. <laughs> so one more thing. So can you say God can look into a person's heart and he can save that blood? It's up to God. Is that a fair assumption? God can look in your heart if you've never been baptized. And he can see if there is faith there, yes. That's the thing God is looking for. So, the, the question that inevitably follows this every time this topic comes up is, what about all the people who've never heard? Which really alarms us, right? How many people are there today who have never heard? I'm going to say a lot. I'm going to say not very many at all. Well, I'm going to say a lot because there's a lot of kids, like street kids and stuff. You know, their parents might have said something and they just shut them out, and so they're not listening. That's, that's different than having never heard. In Islamic um, Iran, have they heard about Jesus? In um, China, have they heard about Jesus? In fact, there's more Christians in China than there are people in the United States. So, 
the number of people who have not heard, I would say, is limited to less than 100,000 people, and probably less than 50,000 people in rural Brazil and on a few islands in the Indian Ocean, um, where there's not been any missionaries. What about Africa? Africa. Africa is full of Christians. Okay. And North Korea would be another. North Korea, um, I think there's Christians there, but I don't. We don't know enough to know very much about there. So, <laughs> turn back over to you, Vicar. <laughs> um, very good, very good discussion. Did you want to go through that, uh, the emergency service of, of baptism? It's. I think that it's important to realize what exactly a baptism really is, because when we think of a baptism, where do we see? baptisms occur primarily in church yes so is it necessary to the baptism specifically to the baptism to have the entire church service what is necessary for the baptism the word what word there is a very specific set of words that Jesus says are necessary exactly so that that is the baptism is the water and those specific words. Everything else is, uh, is an adiaphora, we would say, neither commanded nor forbidden. It is very good practice to have a lot of teaching about baptism and to tell us what baptism is, where it comes from, what does it mean, what does it do? It's a, it's a very good practice to teach about that while we are doing it. But all that is not necessary for that baptism. It's, it's water and the word, and that's all that God has commanded. That's, that's how God has promised to work faith in us. That's our assurance. Um, there is one little, uh, one little part that I want to talk about <coughs> regarding the Greek for just a second. And it's just one word, so bear with me for a little bit. Um, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The other day, uh, this is the example that I was talking about earlier that I was, I was saving for the end, because I want to analyze it just a little bit. The other day, I read a tweet by someone who did not believe that baptism forgave sins. I want to be clear about that. He was not a Lutheran. He was, I think that he was a Baptist. Um, and he said... I can confess the Nicene Creed. Normally, Baptists would not confess that because of what line in the Nicene Creed? One baptism. One baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And so he said, this Baptist, who normally wouldn't confess that, said, well, I can confess the Nicene Creed because um, it says, I... I receive one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And people were like, what are you talking about? That means you're not a Baptist. And he said, it's the same thing as receiving a present for your birthday. It is a mark of your birthday. You're receiving this present. The present doesn't mean, the, the present is not the thing that makes the birthday. So in other words, he was saying, baptism is not the thing that forgives sins. Our sins are forgiven. So then, this Baptist would say, 
So then we get baptized to show that we were forgiven because they believe that it is simply an outward sign that you are a Christian. You are, this is what the Baptist would say, you are acknowledging or accepting Jesus into your heart and your sins are forgiven as a mark of that, or his example is as a, a gift, like on a birthday, then you get baptized. The baptism doesn't do anything. It's just a mark that you already are forgiven. But I was taught that baptism is something God does for us, not what we do for God. Exactly. And that is the correct teaching. That's what we would hold to in the Lutheran Church. The Baptists do, with infants, they do a dedication. They, what is a dedication? I think that's essentially just saying that, you know, this child will serve God, and he will do everything that God wants to do. We dedicate this child to God in order that he will walk in God's way. Now, that's just a lot of uh, what the child should be doing for God. We always think of Baptists as being a very... Um, some people would say happy clappy, if you've heard of that before. You know, they're all just very joyful and you know they'll sing they'll sing gospel songs and they'll be you know dancing and snapping their hands with all this uh, gospel music now wait a minute i grew up in the baptist church so let me tell you one other thing that you're right about you're doing something for god and that judy cordy is the one that pointed that out to me when i became a lutheran but anyway um what was i going to say now oh the reason they don't baptize babies is because they don't believe in original sin. Yes. So they don't, there's no need. They believe that kids can't sin because they don't believe in original sin, which is where they come about with the, uh, the age of accountability. That they don't really know what they're doing until this certain age. When they know what they're doing, then they know that they're sinning. They're sinning on purpose. That's when they need forgiveness. Well, and also, that child makes that decision for himself. Yes, that is true, too. Yeah. They, the child is the one that uh, decides. You go forward at the end of the service. Yes. And declare your belief, and then you're baptized. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a good point. They don't believe in original sin, either. So they don't believe that baptism forgives original sin. Um, now, the point that I wanted to make with all their happy, clappy gospel music, etc., is that the Baptists are actually not gospel-centered at all. Because what does that sound like? We're talking about the dedicating of a baby. Telling the baby, you know, this is what you should be doing. Does that sound like gospel or does that sound like law? That's the third use of the law saying you should be doing this. This is a guide. You should be doing this. So... When people will say things, you know, like, oh, uh, the Baptists are very, you know, all their gospel music and all this stuff, you have to keep in mind that a lot of it is done out of guilt. They are very guilty because there's a lot of law for Baptists. They don't believe that they are good enough. They have to be good enough. They have to do enough to be worthy of God because all of these things they have to do for God, they're not doing them as a response to what God has already done for them. We always say that now that you are saved, you are free to do good works. That means that you aren't bound to doing good works for your salvation. 
That means that Christ already did everything for you. Now, you can do that freely from the Holy Spirit, from the conscience that has been informed by the Holy Spirit. Then you can do good works and you don't have to worry about them. You don't have to worry about if they're good enough. You don't have to worry about if they are enough to save you. You are free to do them without worrying if they're good enough because Christ has already done everything for you and he is good enough for you. So that's, uh, that's a treatise on, on Baptists today. <laughs> um, so going back then, circling all the way back around uh, to, to wrap this up, the Baptist who is talking about I can confess the Nicene Creed because uh, it's a baptism on the occasion of your forgiveness of sins, not for the forgiveness of sins. The word for here is the part that is causing confusion because we can say for as a purpose. You know, I am giving you this dollar for a candy bar. The purpose of this dollar being given to you is to pay for the candy bar. But if, for example, like this guy says, I'm giving you this present for, or just like on the occasion of, rather than for the purpose of, that's, that's the word for causing confusion. Giving you this present for your birthday. So the word for is the thing that's causing confusion. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Now I said I was going to talk about a Greek word. The Greek word that is used here uh, for the word for is ice, E-I-S, ice. That word is also commonly translated into or in. In other words, this word is having a purpose. It has an end point. If you are going like into a cave, the end point is the cave. You are going into it, but then when you're in the cave, you would say, I am in the cave. So, when you are baptized for the forgiveness of sins, we could also say you are baptized into the forgiveness of sins. Into forgiveness, meaning forgiveness is the end point. You are baptized when you're in it. Now you are forgiven. Does that make sense? So the purpose of the baptism, the end point of the baptism, is the forgiveness of sins. The result of it is the forgiveness of sins. Um, the very last point that we wanted to talk about was just the fact that it says uh, about 3,000 were added that day. It doesn't just say everyone. So that implies then that some people rejected the word. So even an excellent sermon preached straight from, and I'm saying this jokingly, straight from the very first pope, uh, it's not 100% effective. The Holy Spirit was rejected by many of those people. 